The Human Experience. Hello, I'm Professor Catherine Colborne, the head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series, The Human Experience, explores important questions about humanity, society and current events. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science scholars who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. Hi, I'm Tricia Pender. I'm an Associate Professor in English with the School of Humanities and Social Science. And today I'm talking to Dr. Erin McCarthy, who's a digital humanist and a literary historian. Hi, Erin. Hi, Tricia. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about the big basic question, what exactly is digital humanities? That is a big question. Um, it's sort of a new field. It evolved out of um, an older practice called humanities computing. And so there's still a little bit of debate around what exactly digital humanities is. Some people think it's all about developing new tools um, and new digital applications, where other people think it's just using digital tools and methods to answer questions in traditional humanities disciplines. This debate sometimes gets summed up as um, the difference between hack versus yak. Um, I, I kind of like a more expansive, inclusive definition myself. I think right now we're all so steeped in digital culture that it's really hard to do humanities work in a non-digital way. I really like that idea that um, possibly we're doing it already. Um, can you tell me what drew you into this field? Well, um, I kind of came into this field through literary history and book history specifically. Um, and so digital tools have given me a new way to answer questions that scholars 100 years ago would have recognized as valid questions. Um, so I'm interested in the way that material texts create meaning. And um, using data and large data sets allows me to sort of track bigger patterns rather than just focusing on case studies. So it's a fresh approach that allows us to um, address maybe older questions or questions that at least would have been understandable to people before, um, but in totally new ways. That's great. What kinds of uh, questions can data answer for us? What can this sort of data tell us about literature? Well, data can reveal patterns. Um, it can allow us to frame new questions that we might not see by focusing on individual items. Um, you know, if you look at one manuscript, you can learn a whole lot about that manuscript. But if you look at 100 manuscripts or 1,000 manuscripts, you can learn things about the culture more generally that you wouldn't necessarily be able to pick up from one individual artifact. The other advantage of, of digital um, ways of working with printed books and, and manuscripts is access. Um, there was a time, particularly with manuscripts, there was a time where you would have to travel to be able to see manuscripts. You'd have to go to Oxford or to London or to Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. Um, but now I can sit in my living room looking out at Newcastle Beach and, and be looking at a 17th century document at the same time. Um, so that's, that's pretty exciting. 
That's great. Um, you mentioned Newcastle and you're a fairly new addition to the university here. Prior to coming here, you worked with a large European Research Council project with Professor Marie-Louise Coulihan. And that was worth about 2.6 million Australian dollars, I believe. That sounds like a really big project. Can you tell us what's involved in that? Sure. I actually tried to tell some of my students about this project yesterday, and I said 2.6 million. And they said, did you say million or billion? And I was trying to imagine how we would have a $2.6 billion women's writing project. I think that's the next step. Um, but Mary Louise received this grant. It was about 2 million euros, so that's about 2.6 million Australian dollars um, in 2014 to study the reception and circulation of women's writing. So essentially, we've known for a while now that women were, in fact, writing in the 16th and 17th centuries. We've had several generations of scholars who have done that important recovery work. Um, but now we're trying to figure out who, if anyone, was reading this writing and what they thought about it um, and to what extent gender shaped their ideas about this writing. So this was a big digital project. This was probably my um, entry into dig like serious digital humanities. Um, and the first thing that we did, because we were interested in reading and reception, was develop a taxonomy of kinds of reception evidence. So in other words, when people read a text, um, they interact with it in different ways, and they leave different kinds of records of this interaction. They might write down, I read this great book by Trisha Pender, um, excellent work. Um, or they might sort of allude to it um, in a sort of casual way that, that we can recognize. Um, sometimes, we didn't use these categories too often, but they would refer to authors' horoscopes. Um, we have a few funeral sermons. Wow. I think there might be one embroidery, but just different ways of, of reflecting one's engagement with the text. Um, and so this taxonomy actually transfers. It's not limited to women's writing or to the early modern period. Um, but that was kind of where we developed it, was in, in the space of early modern women's writing. This all informed the development of a custom database, um, which was then um, launched on the web. It's currently password protected, but it will be available um, open access, I believe, at the beginning of 2020. Oh, great. Um, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. So then we were dispatched around the world to go find examples of the reception of women's ratings. So we each had kind of an area, um, a work package in the European Research Council parlance um, <laughs> that we were focused on. Mine was manuscript miscellanies. Um, one of my colleagues was working on convent archives. Um, and so we just did this kind kind of deep sea trawling, as Mary Louise puts it, looking for examples of the reception of women's writing. Um, so I spent about six months back in the US looking at, at manuscripts. Um, colleagues could be in France or in Belgium, and we could be sharing data in real time using this digital platform. Um, so creating this common taxonomy in the database allowed us to create these categories where we could compare like with like, um, apples to apples. We're comparing transcriptions to transcriptions, embroideries to embroideries, horoscopes <laughs> to horoscopes. Um, and so it's, again, allowed us to see these patterns that perhaps we hadn't seen before. Um, I'm kind of finishing up a chapter now about the quantitative data and doing some um, different visualizations and things. And that is kind of revealing patterns that I hadn't seen before, um, particularly in relation to authorship um, and the way work is um, ascribed to authors in the period. 
Okay, that sounds really interesting to such a massive amount of material. I'm wondering how you think about ascription and attribution in a women's writing project. How do these kind of questions uh, discussions arise yeah that's that's an interesting question and it's actually one I get a lot because people think of say George Eliot and they ask oh were a lot of women writing under male pseudonyms um, and the answer is no actually most of the writing in manuscript um, in this period was anonymous whether it was by men or by women um, people don't seem to have cared too much about who's writing they were reading, or if they did, they often didn't think it was worth recording. Um, so most people weren't signing their writing. Um, so neither were women. So they certainly didn't feel the need to hide behind a man's name because that man would probably not like to be transcribed and circulated either. I was going to say published, um, but that's that's a whole other theoretical debate that I'm very invested in. Um, that we probably don't have time for today. Um, so you know, we have some exceptions. John Donne was a very fashionable poet. And so sometimes you see things ascribed to him, even when they're not by him. Um, but uh, the other difference that I have sort of stumbled upon in doing this work, and one that I'm, I'm working on um, developing more fully in an article, is the distinction between an ascription or an attribution, because I think we tend to conflate those two terms a lot. Um, but really, an ascription is a very specific thing. It's a written mark of authorship, or at least um, a guess at authorship, but it's a physical piece of evidence, where an attribution is just sort of who we think wrote something. So that could be based on the evidence in an ascription, but it could just be rumor, it could be um, kind of a common consensus, um, and it could be a later scholarly projection, but it's not necessarily grounded in any particular piece of early modern evidence. Right. So sometimes it sounds like those ascriptions could be wishful thinking rather than actually justified. Oh, very often. One of my favorite examples of this is a little four-line poem um, and it's it's not a great poem. It's a religious poem, and it, I keep calling it a jangling quatrain um, <laughs> because it's it's just sort of four lines of almost doggerel, meaningless verse. Um, but it's it's religious, but it's flexible enough that it could kind of support whatever religious beliefs the reader had. Mm -hmm. um, and so it get it begins to be ascribed to Elizabeth the first in sixteen fourteen. Elizabeth has been dead for 11 years at that point. Um, so that would be one thing arguing against her authorship. Another point is that it was actually ascribed to a man as early as 1568, um, when Elizabeth was not necessarily writing this kind of poetry. She did write from a very young age. She spoke multiple languages. But we have no reason to believe that she was weighing in on this kind of doctrinal matter at that point in her life. Um, but the poem also gets ascribed to John Donne later. Um, and it's probably not by Donne either, but, but these are sort of public enough figures um, that it's, it's interesting to think that they might have said or wrote these things, whether or not it's true. Kind of like when people Photoshop things onto, you know, president's shirts or, or that oh, sort of thing. wow. Interesting, interesting connection. I do want to ask you, why is it important to study early modern writing and what insights does it give us that are useful in the world today? 
I think I'd kind of like to answer that question in two parts. Why is it important to study early modern writing and culture? And why is it important to study writing at all? Um, because I think that's a question we ask ourselves a lot these days. Um, so first off, uh, to start with the early modern, I think studying early modern um, culture in general, writing, history, etc., um, is important because so much of what we think of as modern was beginning to emerge in the early modern period. Um, you know, recognizably modern systems of government, of economics, um, even double entry bookkeeping, if anyone still keeps a checkbook <laughs> register. This is all invented in the early modern period. And the thing that I'm particularly interested in are the changes in communication and changes in media. Um, you know, printing was introduced into England in the 15th century, the late 15th century. I should say printing with movable type to be precise. Um, and that radically changed the way people communicate with each other um, by introducing this book trade where anyone who could afford a book or knew someone who did had access to writing. It really changed what kinds of discourses um, people could be involved in and who was, was literate and um, reading and writing. So my first book, for example, is coming out in November, um, and it's about the emergence of a market for poetry books um, in this broader literary marketplace and how um, publishers and, and authors and their families and friends could address this potentially vast, unknown reading public um, so it's about the accommodations that these publishers have to make in order to um, make poetry understandable by and interesting to this wider range of readers. So what about um, the other question, why literature? Yes. That's the bigger one, isn't it? It is. Um, why literature? Well, I think sometimes literature is sort of we dismiss it because it doesn't necessarily seem like useful knowledge. Students say, well, how is knowing about Shakespeare going to help me get a job? And I understand their concerns. We all want to have jobs. Um, but, you know, studying literature makes you more sensitive to how writing and rhetoric work um, and how we communicate, how our words create meaning in the world. And that's a skill that's useful in any job. Um, being able to communicate effectively and, and to n have control over language in that way and to be able to understand how language acts in the world. Yeah, um, I like that. How, I mean, everyone could benefit from understanding how language creates meaning, I guess. Yes. Um, so it's not too long a bow to draw to say that this kind of relates to what people are doing on social media, I guess? Oh, no, not at all. I, I actually tend to teach, when I'm teaching early modern literature, I teach early modern poetry as a form of social media because, of course, it was. Um, you know, you didn't type up a poem and pass it around or, or send it off to the press to be published because, again, people were a little bit nervous about what it would mean to expose their creative writing to a broader audience. Um, what you did was you would write a poem down, maybe on just a loose piece of paper or, or a small booklet of folded sheets, and you'd give it to your friends. You might enclose it in a letter. Um, but, you know, it was a way to communicate with your friends, to attract patronage, to apply for jobs, to maybe woo a potential partner. Um, and then when 
whoever you sent your poem to received it, they might make a copy and send it on to their friend, or they might write a witty reply and send it back to you, or adapt it slightly and circulate the two together. So they work almost like memes. Um, And some poems just went viral. Um, Don Don is a good example of this. We have over 5,000. Sorry, I think the latest estimate is about 4,500, but still a stunning number of surviving manuscripts of Dunn's poems. Um, So how many more might have existed at one time? Wow, that is fascinating. And you make me really want to be in that class. I want to take that class that you're teaching. You mentioned that you have a new book coming out. It's called Doubtful Readers, and it's coming out with Oxford University Press. Congratulations on that. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about your book. Sure. Thank you. You can you can tell I'm excited about it because I, I got a little ahead of myself and started talking about the book before literature. Um, but the book is, as I said, about how um, publishers and other agents other than authors sort of shaped poetry into collections in order to sell it in the 16th and 17th centuries. So when you were trying to address this new reading public, as I call it, um, what kinds of changes did you have to make so that they could under so that these new readers could understand these poems that previously would have circulated between friends in this kind of viral fashion. Um, so I'll, I'll go back to Don as an example because he was really the the core of this project from the beginning. Um, he was known during his life as a witty poet. Um, he was educated at Oxford and at the Inns of Court, and so he was very well connected to these educated, wealthy readers. Um, and that was kind of his initial audience for his poems. However, um, in the second decade of the 17th century, he encountered some financial problems and um, converted converted religions to become a Church of England minister, which is an interesting choice, but that was how he could get employment at that time. Um, and he eventually became the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So he was a very, very prominent preacher. Um, And so when he died, he left behind all of these poetic manuscripts. People were obviously keen to read them. But how do you reconcile this prominent dean with this kind of witty rake about town? Um, And it took... Dunn's publisher, John Marriott, a couple tries to figure this out. So the first time he kind of mixed the two kinds of poems, the religious and the secular, um, sort of in the way that someone might in their own personal collection or miscellany. Um, and But then Dunn's friends contributed all of these commendatory poems to the end of that first edition, kind of worrying about po- what people would think of this collection. You know, oh, gosh, are they going to think that this is actually how Dunn lived his life? Um, and actually, I don't know, maybe it is how he lived his life, but that's not how they wanted him commemorated. Mm-hmm. So in the second edition, Marriott undertook this massive revision where he sort of put the kind of dirtier poems up front and the more sober religious poems at the end, kind of introducing this conversion narrative of Dunn's life, um, which seems really familiar to readers who know Dunn now, but it actually, as far as I can tell, was not a story that anyone would have known or thought of while Dunn was alive. This seems to be an entirely posthumous creation, and it was created in that printed volume. Um, I realized that was kind of a long example, but I hope no, that helps. No, that is fascinating, and I'm looking forward to 
reading more about it in the book when it comes out. Yes. Just to wind up, can you tell us what exciting things are happening in digital humanities at the University of Newcastle right now? There are so many exciting things happening um, in digital humanities right now. It's it's one of the areas where um, we're, we're really focusing in the school right now. Um, so I'm speaking on a panel about open data sponsored by the Center for 21st Century Humanities um, in two weeks on September 9th. So that's a week from Monday. Um, and we're also hosting a digital humanities symposium um, that, as I say we, that would be myself uh, with Mary Lore. Uh, and Rebecca Byrne, and we will be um, hosting this symposium in November. So we've received some really exciting proposals, and we're looking forward to that. Um, but I'm also working on ways to bring um, digital humanities into the classroom, into undergraduate research, and um, to build collaborations in the Newcastle area. So I've developed a new subject um, that will start in semester one of 2020. Um, it's called An Introduction to Digital Humanities, and it's kind of a sample platter of DH. Um, it's mostly an opportunity for students to kind of try a lot of different things. Um, they're probably not going to gorge themselves on any one thing in this class, but it will just kind of let them know what's out there and what they can do. And that's sort of positioned between the second and third year courses in our um our compulsory humanities core so that when students get to that capstone project, if they want to do a substantial digital project, they will have the tools to do so. Um, I'm working on a new proposal now for 2021, which will be um, a bit more specialized. And it's an applied course um, doing work integrated learning in the Glamex lab right here on campus. Um, they have this amazing kind of minimally processed collection of photographs of Newcastle for, from um, the second half of the 20th century, including photos of, I think, every surf fest from the beginning. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty neat to see my own neighborhood, um, you know, before my, my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and they have handwritten ledger books that describe where these photos were taken, who took them, who's in them. Um, and so the students are going to work with the librarians um, to kind of curate an online exhibition, starting with linking up that, transcribing the metadata, linking it up to the photos themselves, researching, you know, what is depicted in each photo, who are the people, what is the place, what is the occasion. Um, and so it will be a kind of digital um, public and local history, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. To me, that's much more exciting than just writing an essay and dropping it and turn it in and forgetting about it forever. Me too. And the way that it engages with the local community and and teaches students to, you know, use different skills than just the essay writing is, is great too. Well, it sounds like digital humanities at Newcastle is an area that is undergoing some big expansions. It's really exciting to hear about it. And thank you for talking to me today. Oh, thank you again for having me.